Hello, welcome to Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis. I'm here with my brother, Jeremy Sartori. It is a Brother, Brother podcast on the eve of uh, Brother number three, um, getting married this next week. So, Jer, what are we talking about today? Well, we're talking about a subject that uh, I don't think Christian would, uh, would, would want to talk about with us because it's a, a band he hates. We're going to center it around a band he hates, but um, also just kind of the main theme is sort of great legacy bands or bands that were important at one time that lost their sheen um, due to various reasons. And the, the band that we're going to kind of focus on came about um, via hearing Jason Isbell's new uh, album, which is a tribute album, or sorry, a, 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 I want to say it's a charity album. And so, uh, and he's doing all songs by Georgia artists. And the artist we are talking about is from Athens, Georgia. Um, and the song that sparked this is Driver 8, and we're talking about R.E.M., um, one of, I think, like kind of one of the most important American bands uh, especially for anyone who likes indie or alternative rock, but I get a lot of pushback around that subject from uh, younger generations, Christian being uh, number one in that uh, pushback department. Yeah, I, I, I love R.E.M., but I don't anymore. You know what I mean? It's like I love the piece of R.E.M. that I love, but I really, it's distinct. Um, and the longer they went... Uh, you know, the smaller that portion of their career became. They were they were outsized in my life for a very long time, from 1981 to, you know, say 1987, and then had a revisitation. I've always loved their first few albums, and um, I found that their, you know, later career stuff, and when I say later career, I mean, you know, everybody... <laughs> Nobody likes late career REM. I mean, I think there are some people who will be contrarian and, and say that they love late career REM. But it's all, I think it really depends on what you define late career REM as. And for me, um, late career REM starts extremely early by comparison to most people's uh, uh, timeline. So what, what to you is the uh, period that you love and what is the period where you kind of dropped off? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, you know, first and foremost, I, I, I'm with you in terms of this is a band that I, uh, I don't love as much as I once did. And I, I think did lose something in the three decades that they, they played. I mean, they have 16 albums, you know, it's quite a, quite a long mm -hmm. career. Um, I think of the band actually after doing a little bit of research, on this, and I kind of there's three arcs in my mind, um, three kind of distinctive arcs for this band, or three periods, I guess you'd say, right? So there's mm -hmm. the period that you and, and our sister Lisa introduced me to, you know, and mind you, you know, Win and I's age difference, I was certainly alive for the burgeoning of this band, but you were prime high school age and, and also a, a music fan looking for sort of left of the dial music at that time. So REM was, was right down your, your alley. And our sister, Lisa, loved them and, and uh, worked for WNYU and also, you know, spent time with the band via interviews. And I think even the you know members crashed in her apartment floor at times when they were touring and things like that. Um, correct me if I'm making up uh, stories there, but I believe that she was, you know, knew them fairly intimately, maybe not, you know, good, good friends. <laughs> yeah, walk your way them. out of that, but yeah. Yeah, well, knew them, you know, I mean, at, yeah. at a time when they were smaller. But like... Mm -hmm. um, 
in general, I look at like the first four albums as a, as a section of their career, which is the unknown critic darling, um, you know, next big thing, college music, you know, and, and that's the period that I think is the period that gets lost because of their other stuff that, that's so influential. And I would say 83 to 86. So murmur through life search pageant. Then I think there's a, a kind of like famous REM, which is 87 through 94. And that's going to be actually, you could say 96 and that's going to be your green, you know, sorry, document through monster or through new adventures in hi-fi, but we'll say monster for sake of fame wise. And that's when this band just was the biggest band rock band in America. And, you know, that's actually more my age frame there. Like, you know, I, I was right. probably in like, you know, eighth grade or something and, and or not even like, you know, sixth or seventh grade and, and late eighties. And then, um, nineties, they were a big part of, of my scene. And then there's the totally forgettable. And I'm sure, like you said, they're defenders, uh, 98 through 2011. And, and, you know, some of it had to do with their drummer, Barry dying. And I think he died. Oh, he didn't die. He, he, he oh, left sorry, the he band, left. But... Yeah, my bad. He had a brain aneurysm. You're right. Correct. Did not pass away and left the band, I think, after New Adventures in Hi-Fi um, in 96. So, yeah, anyways, that said, I mean, the things that I, I think are important about this band that I think get lost, I mean, Murmur Reckoning, Fables, and Life Search Pageant, to me, like, you just wouldn't have, in my mind, Pavement, um, you know, even like some GBV stuff. I mean, just bands that like we loved, uh, Archer's Loaf and then in the early nineties, late eighties that were doing what they were doing with the audiences they had, if it wasn't for REM and maybe I'm putting too much weight on it because it wasn't my time. Um, but I just feel like they were a band that made it okay to, to, you know, have Rickenbacker jangle, uh, kind of obscure lyrics and, you know, just not sound angry or, um, you know, uh, punk, I guess, in some way. I mean, to me, yeah, it was, it was very a, American post-punk music, which was really distinctly Southern and American in a weird way. And I'm sorry, I'll, mm-hmm. you were there, so I'll let you uh, comment on that. No, no, it, I mean, it was certainly, I, I wasn't there there because, you know, oddly enough, um, our other sister, Sarah, was the one that was there, there. She was in college in the Southeast um, in the early 80s to mid-80s when R.E.M. was still on that you know, very well-worn circuit of Southeastern college touring, um, you know, that uh, Widespread Panic and, and other bands later uh, picked up my morning jacket. It's that, you know, that loop of like, you know, UVA to, you know, down to Georgia Tech to FSU. To, you know, it's, yeah, it's all those college towns, Chapel Hill, Chapel Durham. Hill. Yeah, it's um, Nashville, Asheville, um, you know, rather than list them all out. But it's, uh, you know, REM, yeah, Rockville. Um, but, uh, REM was, you know, was their secret, you know what I mean? It was their baby and they were going, you know, I think it's, it's what ultimately made Hootie and the Blowfish big in the same way. It's like they just, and Dave Matthews band. You're not helping my uh, case here. With some of your comparisons. No, I'm not at all. I'm in fact, <laughs> I mean, why between widespread panic, Hootie and the Blowfish and Dave Matthews, I mean, like I said, that that is a well-worn path, but that also was the path of, you know, the B-52s and, and you know, bands that we, you know, love that weren't as big, like Let's Active and, and um, you Pylon. know, uh, 
Yeah, and uh, long riders and people like that that kind of came out of that world. Um, I think, yeah, it, what it was was it was the DIY spirit of punk made by people who made, you know, who liked punk but weren't, you know, political, weren't overtly political and were more tunesmiths. I mean, this is the outgrowth of the Birds and the Velvet Underground rather than, you know, Iggy and the Stooges and Black Flag and um, and the Sex Pistols, you know. these were, But they were all bands that liked all of those influences that just manifest themselves differently. And that's why this got the sort of moniker of college rock because it was coming out of colleges and being played, played on, on college, college radio. radio. Yeah. yeah, and so that, that sort of, you know, college rock, which didn't, uh, you know, a sort of label that didn't last because... Um, you know, it, it's so defining, but, you know, college rock, indie rock, um, and, um, you know, that, that, you know, it all sort of covers the same bases. REM to me, uh, was those first, you know, four albums and an EP. It was our little secret. My friend's, uh, older brother went to Princeton, came home with Chronic Town. And we loved it. And then Murmur came out. Maybe Murmur and Tonic Town, we got at the same time. But we loved Murmur. And, you know, it was... Those albums were kind of our secret. And there was a, a sort of subculture within public, you know, high schools. I was in high school in uh, upstate New York and then New Jersey and then Massachusetts, uh, you know, all within about... 18 months and um it was uh you know it was that's how you identified people it was the guy in the rem shirt that you knew you wanted to talk music with or the guy in the who's Purdue shirt you knew you wanted to talk music with and um that you know that became its own little uh subculture and yeah i was gonna say that, it would be the person that you knew kind of like your tribe you would know Am I am I inflating the importance of those records? Because I still no. pop on Reckoning, and I think it's one of the best sort of DIY indie pop albums made. You know, and especially in the '80s, I think it's awesome. I think songs like Driver Eight are is is just a really moody, weird song about you know, I guess about driving a train all night through the southeast, which you usually get stopped at a you know a, a stoplight for three hours while those freight freighters go by. You know. Um, I, I find those songs to be surreal. You know, I think one thing that REM had issue with is their front, or that people have issue with is their front man. And, and I think we talked a little bit about this with Husker Du and, and on our last pod, but, you know, Michael Stipe, who's, who's come out as gay, um, was like painfully shy at, at first and then kind of came into his own later, um, you know, sometimes in ways that were, were somewhat annoying, not due to, not because of anything to do with his sexuality, just he, he sort of had a, a point to make constantly um, and sort of didn't necessarily ever seem like he was enjoying the fact that people enjoyed his music <laughs> as much as they did. Not only but, that, but I mean, I think their reputation has, as a live band, you know, really grew. Um, but, you know, I saw them early on. They were good, mm-hmm. but... You know, they were a band where you could have seen them with the curtain down and it had a just as good of a time, you know what I mean, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, like sometimes you pop on a record or you go to a show and there isn't a lot of difference there. It's not bad because the record's good, 
but it's like yeah, can, they were all the songs kind of you wanted to hear. Alive. Yeah, yeah, they were all the songs. You know, and 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 back then there was that mysterious nature of of people. I mean, you know, we talked about this when we talked about the Pixies not too long ago. But you know, there was a mysterious nature. Um, if people weren't on MTV, you didn't really know what they looked like. You didn't know who they were, how old they were, where they were from, all that stuff. And, you know, you, you certainly read articles and you know that this was a University of Georgia band from Athens and there was an Athens scene and there was a Minneapolis scene and there was a Boston scene. And, you know, um, you know, there was, you know, little micro scenes all over the country. Um, but you didn't really get a feel for who these people were. And then, you know, pictures of this band didn't really give them away. Um, and, you know, it's funny as, as, you know, the couple years went by and, and say reckoning and, and then life's rich pageant came out, you know, we're getting further for me into high school, elementary school for you. And it, you, you had like a proprietary feel for these bands. Like this is our, this is our band and we want them to get huge and we want them, we want everybody to understand what we like about them. We want everybody to hear this and feel the same way they do when they hear round and round by rat. You know yeah. what I mean? It, we, we want people to hear this and feel the same way they do when they hear Springsteen or, or Michael Jackson or whatever. We, we don't understand why this awesome music isn't the most popular thing and isn't pervasive on the radio. And it just wasn't. And um, the, the funny thing is that, um, and I would say this about the, you know, the Smiths as well, who were the sort of, um, you know, the sort of co-founders of this, you know, little high school niche that, that you know, for, to which I belonged, and, and I'm sure a lot of other people did. You know, you sort of like the Smiths and the Cure and, and some English bands and, and uh, R.E.M., and you know there were you two simple minds um, echo and the bunnymen echo and the bunnymen basically the, water. Uh, the sticker collection you had on your your desk when we were in uh yeah. we were in high school <laughs> the sire records roster yeah. and the irs roster and, and you know a couple of other uh slash roster um but the fact is that you know there was still a lot of uh you know still a lot you didn't know and it was tough to to get access. And so you, you know, you wound up idolizing, uh, these folks and not understanding that being, um, you know, that mumbling through songs and hiding behind your bangs was, was, uh, you know, was a form of shyness and insecurity. And instead, because you loved them and you couldn't wait to see them and you thought they were the greatest thing in the world. Um, you couldn't really understand why, a person who who made this great stuff and and was elevated to such a level in the press and and among your friends was you know sort of self-loathing and and the fact is you know now that you're older and you can figure it out you realize the reason they made such great music that spoke to you is because they were insecure and self-loathing and and uh, needed to hide behind their bangs yeah no I, I agree i mean i think it was something that you know going back and for me it was going backwards i probably discovered REM in what I consider the next kind of phase, which was, you know, with document and we'll talk about that in a minute, but I, um, and I'm sure a lot of people actually consider that into the, the great period. I do not, I cut that one out. Um, but mm. I, uh, you know, 
I think for me, it was exactly what you're talking about. It was something on the radio when that, even that song, the single, the one I love, which um, neither of us like, it was just something different. Like I didn't really care that I didn't love that song and, and don't love that song. It was the same with hearing like seeing the replacements video for You um, Be Me for a while, right? And, and you know, this mm-hmm. famously REM and the replacements sort of had a early competition because A&R people and record execs also wanted these bands to be big and, and kind of thought, you know, as we did, and, and obviously one went on to do so and, and one didn't. But, um, you know, in, our, in the great book, you know, Trouble Boys, it talks about even a friendship, you know, between members and, and sort of healthy competition. But that said, you know, hearing those songs or seeing that video, I just knew that that was different than Round and Round or, you know, um, you know, Bon Jovi's, you know, Slippery When Wet or, or whatever was huge at the time. Um, and even then, like, you know, Paul Abdul and shit like that, that also was, you know, just huge for my time period. So I, I was like, oh, this sounds like, I mean, it really did sound like what you called college rock, because it was. And it was like, you know, even if it wasn't my favorite song by an artist, I knew that it it was in that other group, that subgroup that you're talking about, where the, the maybe the artist didn't even appear in the video, or if they did, it was sort of half-assed, you know? Mm-hmm. It was interesting. Um I just quickly, you know, because I think the thing that I, I feel like gets lost with this band, and again, you're welcome to disagree or agree. I just, and I and I may be wrong, and like you said, there was a lot of sub cults and things like that, but I think we kind of touched on it with Who's Du episode last time. I think it gets lost that this band made it okay for people in that subculture who weren't necessarily The Cure or The Smiths, who had such distinct sounds, um, or kind of mopiness or, you know, it became gothy or whatever, or, you know, the, the, you know, black flag world to, to make kind of big star style pop music. I mean, REM has a, a B-sides collection, which, you know, they cover like Toys in the Attic, Pylon and Velvet Underground songs, you know, and, and because those were their sort of influences and, and, you know, it kind of just opened up, I felt like a space that wasn't there before them. Totally correct me if I'm wrong. I think the replacements did a little bit of that too. Husker Du obviously did too. But the but the replacements always had that bratty male drunk dudeness, you know. Mm-hmm. And Husker Du was fast as fuck and you know powerful. And even their pop songs live, you know, uh, revved up another you know hundred miles an hour. So am I wrong in, in kind of like wanting these guys to get a little more credit for that, or am I am I no? It's this is actually why what the distinction was. I mean. You know, it's funny to look back on it now because, you know, the British bands of that era had a very outsized um, and performative streak because of the way the British press is organized and the way the British press responds. So it's incumbent on every British band to come up and say, we're the greatest band that ever lived. Everything that came before us is bullshit. Sashay around like Morrissey or, you know, things like that. Yeah. But I mean, just have a presence and an arrogance that, that gets you attention, whereas the U.S., um, it was very different to be uh, def- deferential and reverent. And, you know, the REM came out and, you know, REM, believe it or not, uh, was probably, I mean, most people, you know, have a revisionist history of this. Um, uh, but REM was most people's gateway into the Velvet Underground. Yeah. Um, you know, they were, totally they were the that. band. I think it might have been, the, I mean... I, I knew the yeah. I was gonna say I might. I knew the Nico album coverage is you know so iconic, but like the Andy Warhol cover. But um, 
But I think like because you had left the B side, the was it what was it letter post office? Uh, it was either Dead Letter Office or Dead Letter office. office. I think it was Dead, Dead Letter, letter office. office. Yeah, it's actually a great name for an album too. But um, and that was the Lisa got me the vinyl of Eponymous, which was how I heard the early stuff initially. And then you had Dead Letter Office, and I heard songs like There She Goes and, you know, a bunch of Velvet Underground songs on that that were great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I, uh, once, I got, when I, once I went away to school in 85, um, I heard Velvet Underground for the first time. And, you know, frankly, I had been a little bit afraid because, you know, they were mentioned as such a, you know, complicated and difficult and... and highly intellectual uh, experiment that I would never thought of them. I never, in my wildest imagination, thought they would be accessible. I assumed they were, you know, metal machine music or, you know, some kind of avant-garde John Cage kind of thing that, that you know, you could decipher if, you know, if you, uh, you know, were a great musician and, and you know, were distilling down to the... the marrow of what music is in fact that's not true i mean obviously i've grown to love no one love the velvet underground um since i first listened to them in in the mid 80s um but i wasn't around for their inception i wasn't around for their actual existence and so rem was the first band you know and and then fought you know the feelies and and bands like that where, you know, we were saying, okay, well, this is, you know, these guys are doing their best. Not They're not trying to impersonate the Velvet Underground, but they are trying to capture the spirit of the Velvet Underground. And I think R.E.M.'s first several records were like that. And then I think when they signed their major label, and, and this may be coincidental, um, you know, God, if you can recall how loathsome it was for your favorite band to sign to a major back then, which is, in retrospect, really stupid. But when they signed to a major, their lyrics started becoming decipherable. And yeah. frankly, I just didn't suit them. I, I really liked that mishmash of indecipherable lyrics and, you know, sort of... Um, Scenic. It was almost like they weren't singing about... I mean, they obviously were always subtle. There was, you know, songs like Don't Fall On Me, which is about environmentalism and, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. But, but it doesn't sound like that. It wasn't on the nose ever. It was very... Or, you well, know, even the... Sorry, Even the video for that song, you know, had a a bouncing ball that that pointed out what the lyrics were, which was kind right. of an inside joke to everybody who had said their lyrics are indecipherable. Yeah, um, he just mumbles. <laughs> but it was a it was a it was a feeling, and it was a vibe, and it was great stuff. And then when Fall on Me came out, you know, you can you can get you can make the words out and you're like hey these guys are still really great and um it wasn't i'm with you document to me is the jumping off point i believe it was their last indie but it may not have been it It was their major label debut actually and i think um, it was yeah oh no you know what it might be it was their last indie. you're right green was their major label debut yeah and that's when i stopped you know that's when you know it wasn't it wasn't an act of defiance i just didn't love the stuff that came after Life's Rich Pageant, it changed. And then, um, you know, I think you and I have discussed this ad nauseum. We uh, were both very taken with Automatic for the People. It's a great album. And it was sort of like, you know, they went away for a few years and they came back to us and then they left us for good. Yeah, it was sort of their octum baby without a follow-up that mattered, you know. Um, I think... (laughs) And, and I think, you know, going back to the original kind of concept of this, 
um, you know, where it's sort of bands that like actually were important to us and also to the music that, you know, young Christian also loves bands like, you know, a lot of the bands he likes a lot, I think had influences here. So I, but it's also a band that I can't defend always for the reasons you're talking about. Like, you know, I get it. I love those early albums. I, I, I still listen to Reckoning all the time. I think songs like Don't Follow Me and Driver 8 are, are some of their best songs. Not, not Those albums aren't as important to me as like a Reckoning or even a Murmur, but they're really good albums too. Um, Document, I really couldn't even tell you a song that I like on it. Green was when they had their first hit, the you know Stand, which is kind of goofy and playful, but not great. Out of Time... Well, the one I had, love was their first hit. Yeah, that was the first hit on Document. Out of Time, at the time, does have some good songs on it, but that album just got... That was the album that really shot them in the next stratosphere, and, and they became just massive. Um, and then Automatic for the People was, you know, really just a, a it's a, a different take. It's like a band that, you know, kind of reinvented themselves a little bit in, a, the, in the right way. It was a band that achieved stadium-level success of touring and then ratcheted it back to do, you know, the sort of one for us. It was the director that did one for you you know went and directed an avengers movie and came back and did you know manchester by the sea yeah let's take a quick break and uh why don't you pick a song from the early catalog i am going to pick south central rain cool Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Today we are talking about REM, but we're also really talking about, you know, at the heart of it, bands whose later catalog kind of uh, shades their original importance and greatness to us. And and frankly, one of the reasons uh, this conversation even came up is because Pitchfork last week um, or a couple weeks ago did this kind of funky thing where they went and reevaluated albums they feel like they swung and missed on the first time. And um, I don't know. I'm kind of ambivalent about the fact that they did it because I think it says more... I think their original reviews say more about who they are as a as a source of, of criticism, music criticism, than I think the revised version does. 
I think, um, you know, their desire or their expectation or their propriety. I mean, this is the equivalent of how I felt about REM. They felt about Liz Fair and the Pixies and, and felt so disappointed by those bands um, when they came out with new albums after several years that they deemed to give those people 0.0 ratings and <laughs> just be complete D-bags about uh, people trying to uh, eke out a living and, you know, maybe you get a broader audience um, that they didn't, you know, somehow, uh, um, you know, that the, the, they didn't give the okay for. And, and so go, you know, it, uh, it, it, I think it is retrospectively kind of interesting to go back and revisit some of the bands where, you know, one shitty album came out and it really changed the, the way you thought about everything they had done in the past. It just completely, for lack of a better term, canceled your fandom. Well, uh, I think... What are, sorry, go ahead. Uh, no, I was just going to ask you what some of those bands were that, that kind well, of, you know, that you loved yeah. and then they came out <laughs> yeah. with something and you were like, ah, never again. I was going to jump in there and yeah, exactly. Um, you know... I think a lot of it has to do with age, right? Because you're right. You talked about a little bit when we were talking about REM. It was sort of an identity at one point in your life, you know, and, and it becomes just Absolutely. so much less so as you get older. And I think you really see that in this pitchfork thing. And just for context, this is their 25th anniversary. Wynn and I have unique experience of just being around pitchwork for 25 years and how yeah. it shaped music, uh, you know, criticism and, and culture really to a huge degree. And both in the fact that I think you were just a very early adopter of, of just checking them out good or bad and you know maybe teasing them for some of their writing being a writer and I happened to live in Chicago as they were um you know kind of coming to to age and you know have, and partnered with them on their on their first music fest as, as a corporate sponsor for the company I was working for Whole Foods at the time and so um you know we, we just have really you know I mean like you know uniquely have met some of these folks and also uh, been around it. Um, but that said, your initial question, sorry to go off on a tangent there, but yeah, I mean, there's totally bands like that. It, the REM thing is a great example. Obviously, um, they have a much bigger catalog and I, I feel more strongly about the early stuff, but, you know, I always think of a band like Soul Asylum, right? That, you know, I, I kind of liked their first couple albums. They weren't my favorite band. They weren't the greatest thing in the world, but they were good and they were like, you know, had a lot of energy and, and, you know, I never got to see them in their prime live, but, um, you know, had that they were good. sound, sound garden is another one, you know? Um, but you know, soul asylum with grave dancers union, I, I almost like, it, unlike REM that I can actually defend albums like reckoning. I really like almost, you know, I have to put on like a, a voice distorter when I talk about, <laughs> you know, singles <laughs> like cartoon and stuff, even though they are good singles, like play them, they're good. Um, but yeah, Red Hot Chili Peppers for sure. I think you mentioned B-52s. Um, you know, we, we both kind of talk about how embarrassing, you know, Sting's move to uh, sort of adult contemporary music, you know, became after like the sort of urgency and attitude that the police had. Not one of our favorite bands, but, you know, that, that was definitely a twist. But you know, completely, so completely yeah. a, uh, you know... Um, part of my youth and, and actually you know the police are good the police were a good yeah. band the three of them together were a good band don't stand so close to me and it all starts to end with you know um, uh, every breath you take became you know sort of Sting took that and then added like you know more saxophone and world beat and you know I mean it was just amazing yeah. to me that 
anybody who had a pulse could listen to that guy. Yeah, it's pretty, it's grim. But I think, you know, um, even yeah. bands like who probably were not ever that wonderful, but had a place in time and a scene like the Red Hot Chili Peppers, right? You know, I mean, you had a band I saw that the was, Chili Peppers a lot when I was yeah, younger and I saw fun. them. They were a lot of fun. And, you know, I saw them with the original lineup with Hillel Slovak and Jack Irons and, you know, they were, they were a party. And I saw them at a bunch of small venues and we used to go and they kicked ass live. It was, it was a absolute, you don't know what you're going to get. It was, and then, you know, I mean, the fact that they're 60 now and they're still doing the cocks on socks thing or socks on cocks thing is just humiliating. <laughs> yeah. I mean, under the bridge, uh, you know, watching Anthony Kiedis, you know, run down the beat. I mean, it was just painful. Um, and, you know, I think too, you know, bands, um, Gosh, I just had him in my head. We were just talked about him. I can't believe it. It just spaced out. But um, Soul Asylum, B fifty twos. Yeah, Red Hot Chili Peppers. Uh, Police. Yeah, no, I don't know why I can't think now. But anyways, yeah, I mean, so there, there's, you know, it's funny to kind of, I'll just jump into some of the Pitchfork stuff. It's just funny to see, you know, kind of these guys go back and and kind of reevaluate some of their. Um, their criticism States. and some of it's really unnecessary in this thing. So, you know, just to, I, I figure we could pick out a few because some of them are like a high score that goes to a slightly lower score for no reason at That's all. Just so unnecessary. what I thought that was, a, that was just, I think to, to prove their, you know, their, uh, I don't know, bona fides as, as like, or open-mindedness or something well, that well, you know, something they loved is, went down and it actually almost, contradicts exactly what they're trying to say here because you know some of these like and you mentioned the famous we'll just start with Liz Fair right so Liz mm-hmm. Fair you know Exile and Guyville Chicago classic indie rock classic album tons of you know um, hype around her and you know she's somebody who put out a pop album you know and, and um, I'm trying to find the year I think what was it oh oh three right so Liz Fair self-titled I know this record pretty well, actually. It's a, um, you know, it's a, it's a, like she wanted to have some success. It's a, it's a polished pop Crow. record. Yeah, exactly. And she's not bad at it, to be honest. And and she's still Cheryl got a Crow's little bit of sharpness. It. Yeah, and and uh, Pitchfork famously gave this a zero point zero, and has has come out and apologized on Twitter and kind of re revamped it to a six point um, which is probably about right, to be honest. But like honestly, it kept me from listening to it at the time, though. Well, that's the thing I was gonna say. So the the funny thing was the influence they would have, and especially at that point was was pretty strong, and and especially in 03. I mean, that was kind of probably the height of their influence to some degree. But you know, these were kids or younger younger adults, you know, writing snarky, shitty reviews on bands, um, and you know, people like myself and and you, you know, they had some influence on right. I just was sort of like it wasn't cool to like it or it wasn't so i appreciate you know kind of apologizing in that sense and the other one on here that is very similar is lana del rey and i actually love that first lana del rey album having to go back to it because of all the like hipster bad you know it was like she got tons of hipster praise the album came out and then it was like meh and you know i ended up sort of writing her off for no reason you know which is sad but that happens sometimes when you're you know especially when these guys were more dominant Mm-hmm. I would say though that um, I would say that 
you know, one of the things, you know, you say they were sort of snarky, and they were snarky, but I would say that the reason I liked Pitchfork is because I think they took this stuff very seriously. So, you know, I don't think that they were just, you know, gutter snipes and, and throw, lobbing bombs no, from nowhere. No, yeah, I agree. Know, Sorry, they, I... They, took the, they took the shit real seriously, and that's why something like a 0.0 review from them is kind of damning. And, and they did the same thing to the Pixies, um, you know, who put out an EP, and, and you know, it was a 0.9 or a 1.2 or, you know, something ludicrous. And you know what? It probably wasn't that good. But at the same time you know, it wasn't being measured on the same scale as, there wasn't a zero, you know, there wasn't, it wasn't a zero, uh, what do you call it, like a sort of baseline um, uh, measuring system. It wasn't, it didn't have, it wasn't appropriately calibrated. It was, you. we are going to review every new album based on its merits, and then we're going to review any band by, I mean, any record by any band that we actually like, with a completely different set of criteria, we're going to completely base it on its value compared to what you've put out in the past, and it's just not the—that's not the way you approach criticism. It's not the right way to approach criticism. Well, and some of these are glaring in the sense that um, you know, and like I said, it, it does kind of contradict that like apology or that sort of mistake by then taking bands that they overloved. And putting them like under because a lot of those are wrong, to be honest, in my mm-hmm. mind. But, you know, PJ Harvey's a great example. Stories from the City, um, Stories from the Sea, which is a fucking great album. <laughs> like, could yeah. be maybe one of my my favorite albums. Which ever. I loved in real time, yeah. I loved in real time, too. And, and, and luckily that came out in 2000, so I wasn't on the internet as much. Um, you know, they gave a 5.4, which is ludicrous, but that has to be because... You know, she sounded because it like wasn't rid of me or dry. Or yeah, dry. exactly. Yeah. And then sounded like another. Um, and then you have some corrections in here where you know, like Wilco five point two to eight point five. I don't totally agree with that one. Actually, they might have been right on Sky Blue Sky, and I'm a huge Wilco fan. But um, well, you're not a huge Sky Blue Sky fan. You should say you're a huge. I should Wilco say fan. I'm a huge. Well, yeah, I'm a huge Wilco fan. Exactly. That's the one album that I just have never been able to get into. But um, but you know, Foxygen, for instance, right? Eight point four. I think that's actually. That's a great record. You know, we are the 21st century ambassadors of peace. No, that's the one. That's the second one, isn't it? Uh, is it? Yeah, I believe no, that's I the second so. one. Yeah, I believe it is. All right. Now we got to look it up. Real time Googling here. Well, while you're, while you're Googling that, I'm going to say that, yeah, it is, you know, they, they took. Interpol and reassessed Interpol, and you just can't. I mean, it's just yeah, why? It's stupid, <laughs> you know. No, that's the first one. This is the this is the first record, the Foxygen album. This it's the, the one with Shuggy. Shuggy, and... yep, San Francisco. I mean, it's a fucking great no. record. And there's no, I love that new... record. Yeah, and both Interpol is my other example with this. Like, this is just kind of like to me, this isn't a. Uh, like to your point, just trying to have some cred, like, well, we overhyped this one, you know, like mm-hmm. it's, it's a great record. I would say if they had, if this was the second album, then I would agree with the downgrade. Um, and Interpol's album too, you know, if you read the kind of recap of the person's reasoning, it was because they were so young that they were so taken by it. And that's, you know, mind you, our, our co-host brother Christian's one of his favorite albums of that time period for exactly the same reason. But then sort of talks about it, you know, not sounding the same today or just not really being there. And it's like, yeah, I don't think you can do that either, though. You know, that's the same as like, you know, 
taking Liz Fair and comparing it to Guyville and not putting it in context of like a career versus, you know, um, listening to something when you're 14 and then listening to it when you're 30 and, you know, then judging it on, you know, a different scale. It doesn't make sense to me. And not, not yeah, like you're I, going from an, a nine to a, a two, you're going from like a, you know, something to, you know, what do they have here? It's a, a 9.5 9 to a seven, seven, you know, like it just, it's just silly. Yeah, just, just save the, save whatever the internet version of ink is. Some of the, the funny ones uh, though, like seeing Daft Punk discovery as a 6.4, like that was a miss, you know, like, wow. Yeah. They fucked up, you know, big time. That was great. And, uh, All right. the Lana Del Rey is another big miss. Um, and the Strokes one, even you don't need to go from eight to nine point two on Room on Fire. Although I will, uh, I have waved the flag for Room on Fire being a million times better when you re-listen to it than you thought it was. But there's some funny ones yeah. in here. I mean, sorry, go ahead. No, I just I think it's silly. I think, and you know, it's um, I do think, uh, you know, I, I at some point if I had the time and patience, I would I would write a book about, um, you know, hipsters. And uh, about the um, what I what I like to refer to as the Justin Timberlake corollary, when mm-hmm. Justin Timberlake left Holly a boy band, you know, you know, it was it was absolutely unthinkable for you to like REM and New Kids on the Block. It was unthinkable for you to like the Replacements and you know even you know I don't know uh, New Edition or or yeah. Spice Girls or whatever it is. When Justin Timberlake, and I think it goes right down to dick in a box, when Justin Timberlake proved that he was cool and funny and it, it knocked down more barriers for, you know, that, that sort of great wall between hipsterdom and mainstream uh-huh. culture than any other single individual in the history of, of uh, uh, you know, modern music, I think. Um, it just it became like suddenly overnight acceptable. Like, hey, Justin Timberlake's cool. It's like, oh, yeah. can't wait till the next Justin Timberlake record. And like all of a sudden, it's oh, Britney's good too. You know. And fact is, there you know the music didn't change. Your opinion no, it changed. It's always been catchy, and I mean, it's a great example. I mean, you know, I think one of the first sort of uh, post Justin, you know, Carly Rae Jepsen, who gets a ton of hipster cred, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she's good. She's a really good pop singer and, and talented. Call and, Me Maybe is a great fucking song. Great song. Totally. But that's where you take something like the Liz Fair thing and like, yeah, Liz Fair is older and she's trying to, but she's trying to do the same thing, you know, like, mm-hmm. and fairly successfully. That was a pretty good album. Like I said, it was, it was pretty pop. Not to harp on that one completely, but, um, yeah, no. And I, I think too, I mean, I just don't even, Pitchfork used to be a part of my daily newsfeed or, or whatever. I, I just, I obsessively checked it, you know, and I obsessively mm-hmm. even scored my own taste off of it sometimes, you know, and in a weird way, like I would really like something and, and then kind of look it up to see if it was like approved. Um, and not to sound like I was totally dependent on that. I certainly had my own taste and everything, but, or I'd be disappointed if they didn't like something as much as I did. And now, you know, I do check out Pitchfork. Obviously I hit this, but I really, it's like, not a, definitely not a daily occurrence for me, if not even, you know, maybe a couple times a week, if that. And, um, and I think just in general, you know, with things like streaming and everything, it's just all become so much more obsolete or, or just having other sources. And, you know, we can always give them credit for really, I think, taking music criticism and, and music kind of coolness to the, 
online platform. There's much, there's a ton of other outlets, obviously, but I think they really did kind of pioneer or at least become the biggest first. Well, I, my, my complaint is, um, you know, inevitable when, when a company get like that, you know, sort of independent voice gets purchased by a major corporation in this case, Condé Nast, um, you know, they no longer are, but they're no longer, you know, torpedoing records because they're no longer reviewing records that they find objectionable. So right. everything's in that sort of middle territory of I think yeah, the curatorial six to uh, six to eight. Yeah, but I think the curatorial piece now is rather um, they don't review it if they're gonna shit on it, and if it's somebody who is too prominent to ignore, um, they'll go to you know like the six range or whatever. But you know I'm also finding as I get older, and it could be just that I'm getting older that the six and you know the but somewhere between six. Point four and seven point six is my uh, is my sweet spot. Those are usually the albums I like. One hundred percent. Yeah, I mean it's uh, it's always been. I've always found that if it's in that six to you know seven point five or something range, I'm like, oh, this is right up my alley. Um, yeah, and well, it used to be reliably. It used to be pretty reliable that if they loved a, a band too much, uh, the Shins, White Stripes, um, then their third album was going to get uh, kind of kicked to the curb a little bit and, and because it was just, um, you know, it was an exercise in absolving themselves of being too excited about something. Yeah, no, definitely. Well, cool. Um, you want to take a quick break and, and come back and end this out? We always do. Well, yes, I do. Uh, Damien, why don't we do uh, Call Me Maybe by Carly Rae Jepsen? I threw a wish in the well back to brother 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 and today it's Wyndham and I and we've been talking about uh I guess in general bands that uh, you know kind of had a moment or had an importance and then kind of lost that that sheen and then we also kind of covered the uh Pitchfork's 25th anniversary and uh in particular their do-over yeah their do-over on uh certain albums but um we are coming to a close here and ending this as we always end it uh when what are you listening to uh, I am listening to, I am reading the new Jonathan Franson book, which I, I think the last time we recorded, I was looking forward to, and now I am about a quarter of the way through, and I, um, I guess it's like early REM to me, it's, uh, more of the same greatness, um, I love his stuff, uh, I'm, you know, I, for, if there are detractors out there, so what? I loved The Corrections, I loved Freedom, and this book is right up there with them so far. It's great. 
And um, on top of that, um, I've been watching a lot of baseball. And um, yeah, I guess that's that's about it. And listening to listening to you know, sort of test driving a bunch of new albums, but nothing is is really. Um, blowing my mind. Although I did hear a really cool band the other day that I have never heard of and I've not really seen written up much lately, and it's called Black Star Kids. And it feels to me like a, kind of an American go team. Um, it's just got that positivity of like a day law. It's a three-piece uh, or a three-member uh, band from Kansas City. Um, and there's indie rock elements, there's dance elements, there's hip hop elements, there's it's all there. But check check these guys out. I I think I'm early on this one. So um, what was the can you repeat the name? Sorry, I didn't catch it. It's called Black Star Kids. Black Star Kids, cool. Kansas City right, three piece. Have not seen anybody review their album yet. I like the album. It's really fun. Awesome. I don't know, you know. It's an early, uh, as they say on Stereo Gum, I think, or Consequence, it's premature evaluation. But to me, this is one of the more fun records and certainly one of the most fun to come out of, uh, of the COVID lockdown. So Black Star Kids from Kansas City, check them out. Very cool. Um, I will do so. Uh, let's see. So I've been, uh, I jumped into the Sally Rooney book that you recommended in the last few pods, Beautiful World, Where Are You? Um, very early on and, uh, but very much enjoying it. Thank you for the recommendation. Two have been watching baseball. Um, our home city team is, uh, quickly fading the Red Sox, but had a nice little surprising run there. Uh, gonna tout a podcast. Um, just grabbing the name here because I just started listening to it called Past, Present, Future Live on, on Spotify by um, Osiris Media and uh, just some good interviews with artists that I like a lot. Um, I highly recommend the Ted Leo interview just because he's just a great artist that we love and also interesting guy just to hear his sort of background story but it you know it is what it says on the title they talk about the past the present and then they do a little bit of like a live set um acoustic live set the artists that they speak to so it can be you know a lot of different genres it's not just sort of indie or anything like that but um i tapped into the ted leo uh interview first and and got me a little bit hooked trying to think music wise oh the new vu doc which we'll be doing a pod on so we won't go too into that but um we both love that and we're just kind of going to circle up with christian for a future pod on that so excited about that but highly recommended on apple tv as well and uh that's what i've been listening to you want to throw a throw a tune on the uh the millionth song list I do. In fact, I'm going to cheat and put two on. But first, I want to just say the, the Black Star Kids album is called Puppies Forever. Nice. <laughs> Which, uh, you know, uh, I don't think they stole an album title that I, that I was planning on using anytime soon. <laughs> so, uh, I love that one. So I'm gonna, actually going to throw two songs on. Um, do you know what you're throwing on yet? Well, yeah, now that you're doing two, I'm going to cheat and do two, too. So go for it if you want to go for it. What are you doing? You know. All right. Well, um... I'm going to do uh, a television song because it kind of reminds me of, uh, you know, VU. I've been listening to a lot of VU post-doc. But I'm going to do a song off their second album, uh, Adventure Days. Hmm. And then, uh, do you like that song? I love that song. 
I, yeah, I mean, it's, it's unusual. I did, wouldn't have thought of it, but go ahead. Yeah, I heard it the other day, and I was like, oh, man, this is such a great great tune. Um, and then the other one um, came about as I was kind of uh, listening to uh, you, you and I have been putting together a, a cocktail mix playlist for uh, Christian's wedding, and um, we have some, whoa, what is that? Sorry. That's okay. Sorry, just had something come into my earphones there, so I didn't mean to uh, throw it off there. Damien, but um, I'm going to do Me and the Wine and the City by Lee Hazelwood. Wow. That's two deep uh, cuts two I wasn't there, expecting. Huh? <laughs> yeah, two deep cuts. And I'm going deep cut as well on one. Um, and my first deep cut is uh, a song that actually I was looking at Spotify. I'm a former member of The Birds on his uh, nice. you know solo record that is kind of a cult classic. But yeah, check out Nora, the other, and we're putting it on the uh, list. And then the other one is a complete left fielder, but a really popular song in its day, and that is uh, Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation. So, um, just thought I'd throw you all a curveball. Oh, nice. And, a uh, yeah, there you go. Simon, o- Simon O'Connor, by the way, uh, currently guitaring, guitarist for uh, Modest Mouse, and the... Uh, composer and player of our theme music so there you go yep on tour right now so go see them all right cool talk to you soon i'm wyndham lewis on behalf of my brothers jeremy sartori and christian lewis thank you very much for listening to the brother 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 podcast many thanks also to our heroic producer damian kendall and to simon doom for our epic intro music learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com follow us on twitter and facebook and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on itunes Thanks again for listening.